Uh, yesterday on the program, as I was filling in for John McComb, we talked a lot about what was happening in Washington, D.C., because at this point, at this time, exactly yesterday morning, we were getting ready for the big vote and we were uh, wondering how things would play out. Would Brett Kavanaugh get the number of votes? How would the so-called swing senators vote on uh, confirming him? We now have a much better idea. And let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, a Global National Washington reporter, uh, to talk to us and bring us up to date this morning. Reggie, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, yesterday at this time, we were chatting and there was a lot of uncertainty. There is certainly uh, more certainty today. Absolutely. It came after that uh, speech that Susan Collins gave on the Senate floor yesterday around 3 p.m. Washington. She started off uh, going in towards uh, Brett Kavanaugh's background, talking about his judicial background, talking about how people have been able to work with him inside the appeals court, saying things that, you know, he'd be really good uh, when it comes to not kind of changing precedent that's on the court right now. So you kind of got an idea as to where she was going with her speech. And then about 30 minutes in, she said to the president of the Senate, I do intend to vote for Brett Kavanaugh. Moments later, we had a a Democrat say that he intends to vote for Kavanaugh as well. So it basically all but cemented it into uh, into, you know, status right now that he's going to be confirmed tonight. So unless somebody made some completely uh, unpredicted move and changed his or her mind, that won't change at this point. Absolutely. We would need to lose a couple of more Republicans uh, in order for that to change, because right now it's a 51-49 vote to confirm that that includes one Democrat who's actually up for election this year, which could be part of the reason as to why he's actually going along with this. But it would take two Republicans to step back. One already said that she will, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. She noted yesterday that she doesn't intend to vote for Brett Kavanaugh. But she also decided she's going to vote herself as present as well, because one of the uh, Republican senators won't actually be at the vote. He'll be at his daughter's wedding. So her casting a no vote, but putting herself present allows it to uh, continue to be uh, or maintain rather a winning vote. Uh, What's the reaction been to Susan Collins, uh, both her speech or her comments and her decision to go ahead and vote to confirm? Well, there's a lot of Democrats right now that are calling it out, saying it's you know it's it's un it's unthinkable that somebody who calls themselves a moderate Republican who who often runs as an independent voice within the Republican Party would band together with colleagues who were uh, making you know disparaging comments towards Dr. Ford and don't understand why she could do that. But outside of the political realm, there's a lot of people that are saying this could put her political future in jeopardy right now. There's been PACs that have been trying to raise money and have already uh, one of them's already gathered almost three million dollars to uh, kind of pitch towards the person who runs against Susan Collins when she's up for re-election. So there is going to be a potential political fallout for the move to go in line with her Republican Party. Uh, Which I think probably, too, uh, leaves a bit of a bad taste for people in that you you have to wonder what her motivation is then if she hears somebody who who in the past, I think, safe to say she's she and Lisa Murkowski have, have kind of had similar views. Here she is breaking from that. And you do have to wonder what her political goals are or perhaps what her future goals are in in making this move. That's what a lot of people are questioning right now, because you're right. She has voted more down a centrist line or even a flip side of the left of the right side when it comes to things like uh, Roe v. Wade, when it comes to things about uh, defunding Planned Parenthood. She voted against that. And then during her speech yesterday, at numerous times, she talked about how important the Me Too movement is and how important it is for women who have been victims of assault to come forward and have their voices heard. But at that same time, she was falling in line with her Republican colleagues that say, I believe Dr. Ford was assaulted. I just don't 
don't believe that it was Brett Kavanaugh, noting that the FBI report that was in front of her that didn't show all of the information that could have made a connection between the allegations and reality. She says that's what weighed on her on her on her uh, decision to vote. Which I think is what a lot of people are taking issue with, because it's it's kind of a politician and the politicians voting using that argument saying, we believe you, we should be we should be commended because we do believe uh, a woman in this case. We just don't believe everything you're saying. And that's what the line has been uh, from all Republicans and including the president. You know, at one point when Dr. Blasey Ford was giving her testimony, the president said that she seemed very credible and actually it seemed slightly alarmed by the fact that she seemed credible while giving her testimony. But within moments, it was a flip side where everybody said, well, sure, she might be credible and she might have been assaulted, but we don't think it was Brett Kavanaugh. And it was just the Republicans banding together for one of the very few times that they've done this since Donald Trump took presidency, that the Republicans all banded together. They went with almost the uh, same idea saying, look, this may have happened, but this is our Supreme Court nominee. He's got a good background. We don't have allegations that have been proven. So we have to just move forward and put him in the and put him in the Supreme Court. Uh, you mentioned as well, and Susan Collins mentioned this in her speech, that she's confident one of the reasons she could vote to confirm and vote in favor of Brett Kavanaugh is she's confident he's not going to mess with precedent. He's not going to try and overturn Roe versus Wade. Uh, but that's the exact opposite of a lot of the concerns a lot of the reasons given from people who oppose him saying they're confident he will do that where how do we figure out what is the truth there well, I mean, she says that she had numerous conversations with him over the last couple of days, both in person and on the phone, and that she says that he gave his word that he wouldn't go in and change precedent on things, saying that precedent, you know, it's not just a part of history, it's a part of the Constitution. We can't just kind of rip it up and throw it around as as freely as we would like. So she's basically saying, look, he gave me his word, I'm going to take his word at face value. The problem is, is that going forward, if he goes back on his word, if he does something or if something comes up to the court and he opts to vote, uh, you know, again, against it or kind of break with precedent or move something in a different direction, there's no way to change that because this is now a lifetime appointment that Brett Kavanaugh is, is, could likely be receiving tonight, and there will be no way to change it if he decides to change his views. Uh, so what happens uh, today? Is it procedural? Uh, from what I understand, the, uh, the, the floor is still open. There's not a lot of people, certainly not as busy as it was yesterday. But what will happen then throughout the day today? So senators will continue to give their uh, their speeches. The floor will be open until about 4, maybe 4.30 this afternoon, Washington time, uh, where they can spo- uh, speak. Senators have been speaking basically all night long to an almost empty room except for one camera that's in there. Uh, they'll likely finish up their speaking around 4 o'clock and then put that to a vote. We're hearing that it could be sometime around 4.30 Washington time that that vote happens. It shouldn't take very long. Yesterday's cloture debate vote ended up taking about 25 minutes. It could take about 25 minutes again this time. It's just uh, uh, yeses and noes that are being answered. So we're looking at it, you know, in potentially eight hours from now, a new Supreme Court justice could be confirmed. And are you getting the sense from Republicans uh, breathing a bit of a sigh of relief that this is happening and going through before the midterms? Absolutely. This is what they were trying to do. This is what leadership had been talking about within uh, the last two weeks when Mitch McConnell had said, we are just going to plow through with this nominee. We are going to get it confirmed. And this is a big win for Mitch McConnell. Everybody in the or a lot of people in the Republican Party and those who are close with President Trump had been saying that over the last year, Mitch McConnell had been weak on being able to gather the party together to do things like when it comes to repealing and replacing Obamacare. Uh, There's now this kind of standing behind Mitch McConnell saying, look at what a 
kind of leader he is. He got us all together. He got this vote going through. So there's a lot of kind of champagne victories that are happening around the Republican Party right now because this is a big win for the GOP. On the flip side, in November, this could send Democratic voters out in droves and we could actually see more Democrats win in the midterms. All right, Reggie, we'll leave it there. Thank you again so much for your time and for joining us this morning. Thank you. Now we are going to bring in Tristan Hopper. He's an Edmonton-based reporter for the National Post and joins us on the line now. Tristan, so so great to have you back on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, This is, uh, well, it made me laugh a little bit, but it's a a serious topic as well. And uh, outline for us or tell us a little bit of the background on uh, how you first learned about this as far as uh, fake studies and uh, fake types of academics. So, uh, yeah, I have a, a partial interest in, in ridiculous, uh, ridiculous studies in the humanities, but this is, this is a trio of, of three people. They're, they're all academics, so these aren't right-wing trolls, but it's Helen Clark Rose, James A. Lindsay, and Peter Bogosian, and they thought, hey, you ever notice how critical studies, uh, you know, a branch of the humanities, ever notice how it's really ridiculous lately? I bet if we wrote a bunch of over-the-top, ridiculous, like insanely ridiculous studies, but we just filled them with enough buzzwords like, you know, intersectionalism and solidarity feminism. We could probably get them uh, published in top journals. So they spent 18 months, uh, this trio, writing ridiculous studies, submitting them under fake names and fake, you know, they wrote them ridiculously that any normal person would immediately know uh, that these were fake and obviously a joke. Uh, but they were right. Uh, the, uh, the, branch of academia they were trying to troll absolutely thought they were real and seven out of the 20 were published and maybe even more but they had to uh, stop the project because it was getting too much attention in the press (laughs) and people started to realize that wait a minute these are not real studies yeah there was one well what 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 botched the whole project is uh there was the jewel in the crown study they published a paper uh it was called it was examining it gets the full title there's a there's, it's great because they have these really complicated uh, you know academic titles uh human reactions to rape culture and poor performativity in urban dog parks in Portland, Oregon. so this fake study uh, was saying that dog parks are essentially petri dishes of rape culture and are promoting you know human rape because you know there's just dogs around and they're helping each other and that is it is dog rape that is a version of dog rape so that's sort of promoting dog rape and then it's it's uh, anyway there's a bunch of big words in the study so that that was published by the journal gender place and culture and they even gave it an esteemed position they said this is one of the best studies we've ever seen uh we're going to make it one of the lead studies for this year but as soon as it was published i got picked up by the press and realized it was ridiculous and they noticed something that the editors of the journal didn't notice that the author who wrote it uh, didn't exist, and that the uh, school that they, this author, the fake author worked for, the Portland Ungendering Research Institute, uh, that didn't exist either. Uh, so, pretty quickly, uh, people got suspicious about who was doing this, and then that's when three academics and doctors kind of uh, blew the lid off the whole thing. I mean, one of the lines, and this is quoted in your story, is that uh, it claimed that, uh, that the fictional academic, Helen Wilson, says she spent a year wandering around Portland dog parks with a notebook and discovered that they are oppressive spaces that lock both humans and animals into hegemonic patterns of gender conformity that effectively resist bids for emanci- emancipatory change. What, does, uh, what would that even mean? 
Uh, I don't know, and that is a theme across all of these uh, all of these seven studies that they did get published. Uh, they just sort of take normal things or ridiculous premises and then just throw buzzwords at it until no normal person can make sense of it. And they called it, I mean, the, the trio of academics who, who did this, they called it uh, grievance studies. So, I mean, the technical term is, is critical studies, but they're saying there's a branch of academia that just sort of, you know, complains about everything and finds normal things and just decides it's depressive and a problem and then writes these really dense papers that no one else reads about it. And that's a shame because maybe we should be using this branch of academia uh, to actually, you know, discuss things openly instead of just, you know, bitching all the time. (laughs) Does it also point then, or were they trying to prove as well, that there are places that will publish papers without actually doing due diligence and checking to see that they're factual, that the people behind them are real people, and that they are legitimate studies? Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, this is based on, uh, I mean, there, there was a, there was a famous version of this. It's, it's called the uh, it's, it's called the Sokol uh, event or something. But this was a it was a, a an American mathematician uh, who did something very similar in the 1990s. He submitted a paper that was just utter gibberish, made absolutely no sense. I mean, it was just buzzwords put together and they didn't make any sense. And he got that published in a critical studies manual. Now he was doing it. He's a mathematician. He was a real scientist. He was trying to say, hey, you know, all these critical studies academics, you're not real academics because you'll just accept anything. So, I mean, these seven papers, they kind of made sense on their face. I mean, they weren't just utter gibberish. I mean, they, they you know, they look like real papers and they're footnoted. And uh, so, so it's a bit, bit more complicated than that. But w- what they were trying to prove, uh, they called it, uh, I mean, the three academics said they were trying to prove the, quote, identitarian madness coming out of the academic and uh, activist left. So they were just trying to say this is a branch of academia. And, and they're left-wing professors. Uh, they were trying to say this, we've just, we're too much up our own butts. Uh, and this has to stop because you were able, I mean, things that the normal, that normal people find ridiculous, you thought uh, were worthy of uh, publishing. And the reaction to them as well, like you said, they they were trying to to, to shine light on themselves, on their own, on their own, uh, in their on their own, uh, you know, their own area of expertise. Uh, people have taken offense to this. People, there have been there has been reaction of people not liking what they've done. Oh yeah, and uh, the three, the three the three authors absolutely saw this coming. One of the best papers. So I, I highlight seven papers. Uh, these are the seven ridiculous papers that they got published. One of them, this is so cheeky and so amazing, and I love it so much. Uh, one of the papers they submitted, the entire premise of the paper is that anybody who would dare perpetrate a hoax against this branch of academia was an oppressor who needed to be stopped. Um, and then th- this is the best part. Uh, they concluded that, don't worry, social justice researchers don't have to worry about being taken in by a hoax because they're too smart. And then, quote, to date, not least because of the rigor attendant on peer-reviewed academic scholarship in general and technical skill required to produce them, few academic hoaxes have been perpetrated, especially against social justice-oriented scholarship. So they're writing this. So editors are reading that and being, oh, that's right, we would never fall for a hoax. Well, <laughs> You know, being taken in by a hoax at that exact moment. So they saw this coming. They know, I mean, what's great about these is the field that they're criticizing is so predictable. 
that they were 100% able to predict. They knew that once they went went public with this, they were going to be confused of being part of a right-wing conspiracy, trying to take down social justice. And it's just, you know, insane. So they were trying to, it's great for them because they're trying to prove uh, we're shining a light on this insane branch of academia. And then that branch of academia responds by going insane. <laughs> and you mentioned as well that the 20 papers that they authored, seven were accepted, another five uh, still under review. Uh, I'm guessing, though, now that uh, this has kind of been blown apart, those five under review, although it, nothing would surprise me now, I would guess, though, that the five under review likely won't be published. Yeah, and the seven, those have started to be uh, retracted. So uh, when I ch- when I check out the dog rape study that had already been retracted, so the, the six others, uh, one of them was about how um, fat, gaining weight, like becoming fat, should be considered a form of bodybuilding. Another one was that the study was about how uh, straight men put dildos up their butts more often; they would be better citizens. Uh, the other one, uh, oh, uh, another one was uh, the fictional academic Richard Baldwin. Uh, he went to restaurants like Hooters, and he, he he claims in the study that he spent an entire year at Hooters trying to figure out why anybody would go to this restaurant. And then he concludes in dense academic language. I think it's because there are women in scantily, scanty clothing, and men go there because they like being around these women in scanty clothing. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I believe that's, uh, that's all of them. Yeah, but uh, these have started to be withdrawn by academic journals saying, well, we have reason to believe that this isn't uh, you know, entirely uh, above board, so we've retracted this from our journal. So, uh, yes, you won't be seeing these anymore. But for the time being, I mean, I was able to pull all these off of, off of the Internet where they've been published. All right. Well, Tristan, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. And people can still uh, see your uh, piece in the National Post and see examples of these as well. Thank you so much for being with us today. Anytime. Thank you. Well, if you've been downtown when there are cruise ships docked in Vancouver, you know it can get quite busy. They bring a lot of people. People spend their tourism dollars. It is a very can be a very lucrative industry. But are we losing out when it comes to accommodating the bigger ships as ships around the world get bigger and bigger? Well, joining us to talk a bit more about this is Barry Penner. He's now a lawyer for the Cruise Industry Association. Barry, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Good morning, Jill. Uh, How is Vancouver doing as far as on the stage, uh, the world stage, when it comes to ports for cruise ships? Well, we've really been on the world map uh, for a number of decades now, so we've become used to uh, significant cruise traffic and the benefits that come with that to our economy. Currently, about 15,000 jobs are sustained in British Columbia because of the cruise industry and $2.2 billion in GDP just for British Columbia. So it's a pretty uh, healthy contribution to our economy. But as the ships get bigger, uh, as you've mentioned, they're having more difficulty getting into Vancouver Harbour to our current facilities at Canada Place, which were built uh, in 1986, so uh, several decades ago. Uh, And in the meantime, we've also lost some cruise capacity. The port has uh, essentially decommissioned the Ballantyne Pier, which provided some additional capacity to Vancouver. So we've actually seen a reduction in cruise capacity in Vancouver in the last three decades. Uh, we did have, was it the largest cruise ship to come here, the Norwegian Bliss, uh, 6,000 passengers and crew. Uh, so we were able to accommodate that. How, uh, how was that then possible if we're, not, if we're not really accommodating the bigger ships? Well, that was a, a tremendous day, and, the, and uh, we're very delighted that the Norwegian Bliss was able to call in Vancouver once this season. Uh, but in the same uh, season, it was in Seattle 16 times. 
So it took a lot of effort and planning, more than a year, almost two years, to arrange that visit by Norwegian Bliss. So congratulations to the port and everybody that worked uh, with Norwegian Cruise Lines to make that happen. But it's kind of the example that proves the point. That uh, was an exceptional experience. We would like that to be more routine rather than just the exception. And so what would need to happen to make that more routine? Uh, We need to be looking uh, for a plan about how we're going to accommodate these larger ships if we really want to stay at the forefront of the cruise industry. Uh, Increasingly, the larger ships that are coming and being deployed in the Alaska market, and for Vancouver, that's, that's us, uh, because the destination, the marquee destination internationally is to go see Alaska. And the question is, where will those cruises originate from? Uh, Vancouver's had a big head start in that. Uh, uh, back at about uh, 1990, there were virtually no cruises to Alaska originating in Seattle. But uh, today, there's actually more passengers getting on board cruise ships in Seattle and going to Alaska than there are going from Vancouver. So increasingly, these large ships are calling Seattle their home port, and that means that whenever they turn around, come back to Seattle and pick up passengers, they also refuel, resupply. Uh, The passengers fly in ahead of time into Seattle. They spend money in in Washington State rather than in British Columbia. And from a B.C. provincial perspective, uh, we'd rather see more of those dollars, uh, of course, coming into our economy. And is it is it capacity that's the biggest barrier, or is it also because going to Seattle and Alaska, you you avoid having to go through customs, you avoid coming into Canadian territory, and it's easier and more streamlined that way? There are a number of factors. Certainly for some American passengers, uh, they would find flying into Seattle easier. There's uh, more airlift capacity into Seattle. And, of course, as you mentioned, you wouldn't need a passport if you're from, Amer- from the United States to go to Seattle. Um, However, from the cruise line's perspective, uh, positioning ships in Vancouver and going up the inside passage brings them that much closer to Alaska, which means they don't have to operate the ships as fast to maintain their itinerary to actually get to the ports on time in Alaska. And if they don't have to operate their vessels as quickly uh, at higher speeds, they save a lot of fuel. And we all know that fuel is very expensive these days. So although we think that Seattle and Vancouver aren't that far apart, it does make a significant difference in the operating times and therefore costs to the cruise vessels. Is there a space then that's on the radar? You mentioned that the Ballantine Pier was decommissioned. Is there a new space that would be on the radar as far as building a new terminal? Uh, we understand that the port has done a preliminary look, a pre-feasibility study, but it has not been widely shared. Uh, and the cruise lines were not part of that study, so we, we, were, we were not contributing ideas. Uh, it was uh, handled by the Port Authority. We think that there needs to be some kind of master plan, and perhaps it's something the provincial government, the Ministry of Tourism or Transportation, would want to oversee due to the very significant provincial benefits that flow from a growing cruise industry. As I mentioned, $2.2 billion per year uh, generated in our economy. If we want to see that grow, and I think there's opportunities to see it grow, We need to pull together various levels of government, including the federal government, perhaps, for a contribution, and First Nations uh, and local governments, as well as the tourism industry and the cruise lines themselves. But at this point, that hasn't happened. Uh, We need someone to kind of bring everybody together and work on a vision, just like happened more than three decades ago for Canada Place. Canada Place did not happen by itself. It took vision and foresight and commitment to build Canada Place. And we've all benefited for decades, but 
the time has come where we can't rest on our laurels. Uh, upgrades to Canada Place have occurred in the last few years, but there's more work that needs to be done even with that asset to make it uh, more user-friendly for the passengers that come and go in the, uh, from the terminal. But that alone is not going to solve the, the issue about getting larger vessels into, into the downtown Vancouver. So looking for another terminal uh, potentially outside of the harbour, the inner harbour, is something that we think needs to be closely examined. And was that part of, do you think, part of the, the pre-feasibility study was to look at something not maybe not right in downtown Vancouver at Canada Place, but somewhere else? That's my understanding, but I have not seen the report. So uh, it's, I would be speculating. Because is that is that the, the main, is it that there's just not enough room there, or is it the bridges coming in that makes it more difficult? There's a number of factors. Canada Place is becoming congested because uh, the ships have been getting bigger, and there are bigger ships coming to Canada Place than there were when it was commissioned in 1986. Um, and now the ships, if you look at the order book globally, there are many large cruise ships that are committed to being built, something in the order of $50 billion U.S. And the majority of those ships are getting bigger and bigger. And increasingly, once they're built, uh, and if they're going to be positioned for the Alaska market, the cruise lines are having to choose Seattle in order to uh, home port those ships rather than Vancouver. Are there any concerns about the, the bigger and bigger ships, about not only having the capacity in an actual port, but then uh, the, the draw on taxis and, and having the infrastructure to make sure that uh, there is enough in place to deal with that influx of people? Right, and so that's, that's an argument for perhaps building a second pier or second terminal so that you're not concentrating all that traffic into one place, which is currently what happens in downtown Vancouver. So while passengers like being in downtown Vancouver, they do comment on the congestion and the difficulty in getting a taxi. And some of the, uh, on some days, um, you know, the real crowds or the crush that happens just outside of Canada Place. So that's not a positive part of their overall experience. Uh, if you look at major terminals or major ports around the world, even Seattle, they have more than one cruise terminal. So it tends to distribute the traffic and uh, ease some of the congestion. Uh, and then there is the issue of ride sharing. Uh, the cruise passengers that come from other places are surprised when they start up their phone and they go to request uh, a ride-hailing taxi on their on their device that it's not available in Vancouver. So anything that can be done to try and increase the amount of uh, transportation options would be a positive thing from the cruise passenger perspective. All right. We'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, but Barry Penner, thank you so much for joining us uh, and talking about this today. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Jill.